That brings us to a new division, the ministry of Elijah, chapters 3 through 8. Like I already mentioned, Elijah was more of a recluse who hung out in the wilderness and stayed away from people. And he didn't really minister directly to the people, but he ministered to the kings and he mostly judged them. Elisha is more of a person who lived on the farm with a bunch of other people. And he's going to mix it up with the people. And he's actually going to hang out with the sons of the prophets in a way that Elijah never did. And he's going to bring a lot more blessings and grace and mercy and healings than Elijah ever did. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Ahaz's son Jehoram became king. Now God unpauses the king and he goes back into it. So Jehoram in the north of Israel becomes king. He is the brother of Ahaziah, the son of Ahab. He ruled for 12 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not to the same degree that his father and mother He did remove the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made, yet he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam's son Nebat, who encouraged Israel to sin, and he did not turn away. So basically what the narrator is saying is that Jehoram was bad, but not as bad as his parents, but he was still bad. He did actually remove the sacred pillar of Baal, but he kept going with the golden calf. Now King Mesha of Moab, Moab is slightly south, but mostly east. It's in the southern part of Israel, south, on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now remember, Moab is one of the the descents of Lot. And so Moab is a part of the Abrahamic covenant as far as the blessings of God, but Moab wasn't the chosen nation of God. So Mesha is the king. He was a sheep breeder. And he would send a tribute to the king of Israel, a hundred thousand male lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. And when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. At that time, King Jehoram left Samaria and assembled all of Israel for war. He sent his message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah, the king of Moab, has rebelled against me. Will you fight with me against Moab? Jehoshaphat replied, I will join you in the campaign. My army and horses are at your disposal. So he basically says, Moab is rebelling against me. I want to put them back down and put them in their place. He asked Jehoshaphat to join him, probably because his kingdom has been seriously brought into disheaval from Elijah's judgments. And now he really needs the help of Jehoshaphat. And so the tables might have been turned here where Ahab was a superior king and Jehoshaphat kind of had to follow along. We might have been tilted here now where Jehoshaphat is carrying a lot more weight than Jehoram does. Jehoshaphat says, I will go with you. He then asks, which invasion route are we going to take? Jehoram answered, by the road through the desert of Edom. So the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom set out together. So for whatever reason, Edom joins them. So now we have a three-way alliance, Israel, Judah, and Edom. And they're going to travel through Edom in the south, up through Moab to attack Moab. Verse 9, chapter 3. So the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom set out together, and they wandered around on the road for seven days and finally ran out of water for the men and the animals they had with them. The king of Israel said, Oh no, certainly Yahweh has summoned these three kings so that we can hand them over to the kings of Moab. He immediately accuses God trying to kill him. 
First, he never went to God and asked if he should attack Moab. God never told him to go. And yet now he's blaming God saying, God brought all three of us out here just to kill us. Where did you get that? You've never talked to God and God hasn't talked to you. You came out here with your own volition. God's not trying to kill you. You're paranoid. So he immediately blames God. But Jehoshaphat asks, is there not a prophet of Yahweh that we can consult? And notice he said that exactly to Ahab too. Ahab says, go with us to Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat said, let's consult a prophet first. Now, why Jehoshaphat was a little delayed this time, we don't know. So he asks, one of the servants of the king of Israel said, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to be Elisha's servant. Jehoshaphat said, Yahweh speaks through him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went to visit him. The implication is Elisha must be really close by. And remember, it's, it, it behooves kings to keep t- tabs on really major figures. And we know enough with the CIA and that kind of stuff. If there's anybody really important, the government knows where they are at all times. So they might have just gotten lucky, lucky, and Elisha just happens to be nearby. Now, we know he had to be nearby because if they're out in the desert of Moab about ready to die of thirst, then there's very unlikely that they're traveling all the way back to Judah or Israel somewhere because by then they might as well just drink water. And if they're afraid that they're going to die, then there's no way they can make it to water anywhere. So Elisha must already be out there. Maybe they've already brought um, that he's already consulted Elisha or something. We don't know. But we do know that they seem to know where he is, and he's close by enough that they can get to him without thinking, wow, it's way too much of a journey. We're going to die of thirst before we can get to him. Verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, why are you here? Go to your father's prophets and your mother's prophets. So like he said to Ahaziah, well, now he's saying the opposite of Ahaziah. Look, Ahaziah was judged because he didn't consult Yahweh. Ahab was judged because he didn't consult Yahweh. But now you're the son of these people, and God's just done. Go somewhere else. Go consult your prophets. You've been given so many chances. The king of Israel replied to him, No, for Yahweh is the one who summoned these three kings so that we can hand them over to Moab. Wait a minute. You just blame Yahweh for trying to kill you. Now you're trying to rubber stamp his approval on this. Like, no, Elijah, God called us out here. That's why you have to help us. But he's probably he's lying. He's lying. So notice that like a good politician, he's changing what he says depending on who his audience is. Verse 14, Elisha said, As certainly as Yahweh rules over all and lives whom I serve, if I did not respect King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would pay no attention or acknowledge you. Ouch. He basically sarcastically says, I'm not doing anything for you. But because of Jehoshaphat is a righteous man, I will speak on your behalf to Yahweh. But now, get me a musician. And when the musician played the harp, Yahweh energized him. Now this is interesting. This is the first time in the Bible we see this idea of a prophet needing music to connect with Yahweh. But what we know of music, that makes sense. There's an idea of that in the Psalms, but nothing in narrative that says that perhaps maybe this happened more often with prophets. That this is a common thing. So he, for whatever reason, we don't know why, he says he really kind of needs a musician or music. Maybe he's just so angry and agitated about 
Jehoram that he's like, I need something to soothe me before I can actually talk to God. So I need some breathing time. And he says this, verse 16, And he said, This is what Yahweh says, Make many cisterns in the valley, for this is what Yahweh says, You will not feel any wind or see any rain, but this valley will be full of water, and you and your cattle and animals will drink. This is an easy task for Yahweh. He will also hand Moab over to you, and you will defeat every fortified city and every important city, and you must chop down every productive tree, stop up all the springs, cover all the cultivated land with stones. So he says, by this time tomorrow, you will have tons of water to drink. You will all be well watered. Now remember, this includes their armies, their horses, their animals, everything. So this isn't like a little stream that they're going to discover. And you will defeat Moab. God will hand them over into your hands. And then you will devastate the land. You will stop at the springs, throw stones in the soil and the fields and all that kind of stuff. Now what's interesting is this is strictly forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. When God says when you go to war with other people, you're not allowed to defile the land. You're not allowed to mess the land up. But for whatever reason, God has made an exception here for Moab. And it could be as a judgment on Moab for the sins. So this is what he prophesies. Verse 20, Sure enough, the next morning, at this time of the morning sacrifice, water came flowing down from Edom and filled the land. So water comes flowing down from the mountains of Edom, which is really rare because Edom is also a desert. This is like the desert producing water for another desert. It's not a very common thing. All the kings heard, attack, oh, sorry, verse 21. Now all of Moab had heard that the kings were attacking. So everyone old enough to fight was mustered and placed at the border. And when they got up early the next morning, the sun was shining on the water. And to the Moabites, who were some distance away, the water looked like blood. The Moabites said, it's blood. These three kings have totally destroyed. They have struck one another down. Now Moab seized the pl- and Mo- now Moab let seize their plunder. Now it's not uncommon that these three kings didn't get along with each other. So they just assumed like, man, if there's all this blood in the desert, these three kings probably were just arguing so much that they attacked each other and killed each other. So let's now grab the plunder that's been left behind. The water, if you know anything about Edom, Edom is all the land here is red, red soil like Georgia. And even redder than that in some places. And the irony here is, remember Esau is the father of the Edomites. And Esau means hairy. And he was born hairy, but his hair was red. And remember he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup that was red. And so they said that's why he was also called Edom, which means red. So that became the name of his descendants, the Edomites, the red. And they just happened to live in a land where the soil and the mountains are really red. So this is ironic because in Edom, the dirt is red. And when the water covers all the dirt, of course, the water is going to look red too. What's interesting is here, they immediately, the Moabites immediately see this as blood. And a lot of people have argued like, yeah, come on, people. This is where you live all the time. Can't you tell the difference? Like, you've probably seen this before. And the answer is no. This is the desert. They've never seen this much water before. This is like somebody from Saudi Arabia or or the desert who's out in the desert all the time and they see water for the first time. Or I had a friend who lived in Iraq 
or sorry, Iran. And when he came to America and saw the first snow ever, he was like, oh my gosh, I've only seen this in movies. Now, pre-movies, you might have been like, I've only heard about this stuff. And the idea is like seeing this much water in the desert is not something they're used to. And so they easily mistaked it. And on top of that, God often is in the business of confusing people in battle to the enemy. That happens a lot. So between the rareness of this and God easily messing with their mind like he's done many, many, many times in the past, they immediately assume this is blood. And to their surprise, it's not. Verse 24. When they approached the Israelite camp, the Israelites rose up and struck down the Moabites, who then ran from them. The Israelites thoroughly defeated Moab. They tore down the cities, and each man threw a stone into every cultivated field until they were covered, and they stopped up every spring and chopped down every productive tree. So God fulfilled his prophecy, or he fulfilled, fulfilled what he said he was going to do, and they had victory. Only Kir Hashereth was left intact, one city. But the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. And when the king of Moab realized he was losing the battle, he and 700 swordsmen tried to break through the attack and the king of Edom, but they failed. So the king of Moab, is, he's down to his last 700 soldiers. Most likely these are the 700 soldiers that are his own personal army, his own guard, which means they are the elite of the elite. So he is sending his best against them in a desperate last attack, and even they get defeated. And the king of Moab is lost every single city to these three kings. His army is being slaughtered. His fields are being filled with stones. And his springs are being stopped up, which means the land is literally being made unproductive. And all of his people are dying. His cities are going away. And all he has is 700 men, and they die. He is desperate as any king could ever be in their entire life. And this isn't him going somewhere else and fighting a battle and getting clobbered. And at least I can go home. Yes, with my tail between my legs and my entire army dead, but I'm going home. This is, is his home. And it's disappearing. So an absolute, total desperation. Verse 27, he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and he offered him up as a burnt sacrifice on the wall. And there was an outburst of divine anger against Israel, so they broke off the attack and returned to their homeland. So he does the only thing he can think of now. I need the help of the gods. And the only thing that the gods really want are sacrifices. So he sacrifices the best thing he possibly could find, and that's his firstborn son that would succeed him and take his name, in order to appease the gods so the gods would fight back. And the gods do fight on his behalf. And a divine supernatural power comes out of the demonic realm and is unleashed on Israel, and Israel runs away. That is not what we're used to thinking about. In America, we have subconsciously bought into Darwinism and atheism, where we're like, oh yeah, there's demons in the Bible, and oh yeah, Jesus cast them out of people, and oh yeah, but we don't think that way in our own lives personally every day. Some people have said this is Yahweh. Because really, they're right. The only divine power there actually is, is Yahweh. And the gods aren't really real. But we already talked about this in the divine council of Yahweh. The gods are real. And what we call, they call gods, we just call angels and demons. And the Bible makes it very clear that demons have power. 
They had the power to give the guy at the garrison the power to break chains and escape everything that they put him in. They do have power. Is their power anywhere close to Yahweh? Heck no. But they do have power. I mean, even humans have power. Do we have the power to destroy? Yes, we have destroyed nations. We have dropped bombs on people that have wiped out entire cities and populations. Hitler wiped out entire people groups, practically. Saddam Hussein. We have power. And if we as humans have power, then demons and angels have power too. But that still doesn't put them anywhere close to Yahweh's power. And so you can't just say, well, they don't have power. Yes, they do. That is based in no facts whatsoever. But this can't be Yahweh. One, why would Yahweh attack his own people when he promised them victory? Yahweh has never done that. When he makes promises, he doesn't change his mind. And there's no hint that he's deceiving the king like he did with Ahab. Because why is he doing this? For Jehoshaphat. And does Jehoshaphat deserve to be deceived by God? No. So there's nothing here that would ever hint that God would be deceiving Jehoshaphat because God does not deceive those who are faithful and trustworthy to Yahweh and Yahweh does not go back on his promises. And he told him he would be victorious. So there's no reason to ever think that Yahweh would attack his own people after he promised them victory. Not only that, the only thing that could possibly make him attack them is if they had sinned against him majorly. But nowhere is there any sin mentioned here. They did everything as God commanded them to do, all the way up to the very end. So there's no reason to think that. Nowhere does the context ever suggest that Yahweh is even favoring Moab, that he would even take their side and fight against them, especially after he said, ruin their land in a way that I commanded you never to do that to anybody. Why would he all of a sudden just change his mind that quickly on it? Likewise, Yahweh has clearly over and over again expressed his absolute distaste, horror, and judgment for child sacrifice. Not only does he abhor it, he, dis- he, he commands it to not be happening. Therefore, there's no way he would ever respond favorably to a God that sacrifices child. If anything, if Yahweh is a divine wrath, he would be unleashing it on the Moabite king for sacrificing his son. The only thing that has ever been approval of child sacrifice is the pagan gods. The other thing, too, is every single time Yahweh does something in the Bible, the narrators always give Yahweh credit. They never, God is mysterious and his ways are mysterious, but the narrators never leave you to guess whether Yahweh is doing something or not. They always give him glory. They always point out that it was him. They may not explain why he was doing it or how it happened, but they always say he was the one who did it. And the fact that it intentionally leaves the God vague here means that this would be the only place that Yahweh wasn't specifically said to be the God who did it. So this violates the normal procedure of every narrator in the entire Bible. So everything here suggests that a demonic power fought back somehow. And this clearly shows that spiritual warfare is real. And we have a case of it in the First Testament, and we have cases with Jesus in the Second Testament. And nowhere does the Bible even suggest that that is no longer true for us. This is very real stuff. And we do a discredit to ignore that power. And so it strikes out. Now, no, some people have had problems with this, and they said, well, Elijah didn't keep his promise. 
Because God promised victory and Israel, what? Ran away. Well, there's a couple problems with that. There are some people who said Elijah was deceiving them. First problem, Elijah is not the one who said this would happen. Yahweh does. So Yahweh would be the one deceiving them. But we already talked about the fact that he couldn't be deceiving them because he's doing it for Jehoshaphat. And everything in the Bible says that godly people don't deserve that from Yahweh because he doesn't deserve to be judged. Second reason we know that Yahweh is not deceiving them is this. He did give them victory. Notice the only thing that was left was literally the king. God did. It says, God says, I will give you victory. I will hand the army over into your hands and you will devastate all their cities and you will lay waste to their lands. And then it says, God gave the armies over into them and they defeated all the armies all the way down to the last 700. They took all the cities except for one. And then after you kill 700 soldiers that are left, that city is yours too. One king is not going to be able to protect it. And they devastate the land. That means the prophecy is completely fulfilled, which means God didn't honor his promises. And it only says that Israel ran away. And they ran away after their victory. But you can't say Israel running away is not God not fulfilling his promise. Because did not God promise to bring Israel to the promised land? And in Numbers 13 and 14, did they enter the promised land? No, because of the people's lack of faith. And the Bible makes it very clear that he makes lots of promises. But if we don't inherit the promises because of our lack of faith. God promised them life and prosperity in the promised land, but they didn't receive that because of their lack of faith. So in this case, one, it's not Elijah's promises, it's God's. Two, there's no reason for them to deceive Jehoshaphat. Three, they did fulfill the promises and everything happened as God said it would. And four, the only reason they ran away was because of their lack of faith. For whatever reason, the divine wrath came and they were convinced they could not stand up against this. And this is another example where they're finally obeying God. Everything's going well. And at the very last minute, they're like, that God's more powerful than Yahweh. And they run away. And it's one more example of these people's lack of faith. One more example of these people's lack of faith. They don't finish it completely. And they didn't get to experience how Yahweh could defeat this God too because of their lack of faith. 